This is Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, where we discuss developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy. I'm Jake Seward, Global Head of Corporate Communications here at the firm. Oil prices have plunged to record lows, even entering negative territory. And today we're providing an update on that market in turmoil. To share our latest analysis with you, this episode leverages a client call from our Goldman Sachs Research Division, featuring Jeff Curry, Damian Kavalan, and Brian Singer from our research division, and Anthony Duell from EMEA Commodity Trading in our Global Markets Division. The call was held on the morning of April 21st, 2020. I hope you find it informative. And now, over to the moderator, Chris Hussey from our research division. Thank you, everybody, for dialing in for uh, another commodities call. This one uh, we're holding here in response to the negative prices we saw in WTI. We're very pleased to have with us Jeff Curry, Jane Corbeillon, and uh, Brian Singer out of research, as well as Anthony Dole off of our trading desk, <clears throat> and they're going to discuss uh, what we're seeing and where we're going. Let me kick it off to Jeff Curry. Walk us through it. Great. Um, thanks, Chris. Um, good afternoon, everyone. Good morning. Uh, I thought for the structure of today's call, you know, I'll, I'll give some background around um, yesterday's events um, and take it down to a really basic level. I apologize for those of you that are more experts in commodities, but there's a lot of people on this call um, that need some of the basics. Um, then I'll turn it over to Damien to talk about, you know, the outlook going forward and, you know, also talk a little bit about some of the positioning dynamics, which were stretched going into this. And then Brian Singer will talk about the, the actual shut-ins that we're expected to see. And then finally, Anthony Duell will talk about um, the trading aspects of it from yesterday. So turning to the background of this, and I think it's really important to distinguish the fundamental story from the positioning story. Um, so let's start with the fundamental story. And it's pretty basic. And I, you know, it, this was a fairly well-telegraphed event. You know, um, a lot of people out there talked about the probabilities of crude oil going negative at um, Cushing. It went negative in Wyoming. So fundamentally, the story was pretty straightforward. Um, you know, the idea is you had, you know, the severe demand losses. You had a lot of oil pushing through the global distribution system. It overwhelmed the capacity to transport it, to store it. Um, and particularly in local places, like in this case, um, you know, the mid-continent of the U.S. Um, so the idea of oil prices going negative is really generated from the following observation that a producer that is forced to shut in will be willing to pay somebody to take that oil to avoid shutting. In. They'll do everything they possibly can to avoid that shut-in. And as a result, that's why you see negative prices. And they're usually negative to the level that it's required to get the transportation to find an alternative source. By the way, it's more difficult to happen at the, at the Cushing hub than it is at a pricing point like Midland. But, you know, but to give you an idea how out of whack yesterday was, you know, like the joke that, hey, minus $36 a barrel, you can use helicopters to airlift that, that oil out there. It was not a fundamental story. It was much more of a positioning story. So let's talk about the positioning. And the place where I want to begin is how these ETFs work, because the core of the problem here were ETFs that were long going into two days before expiration. Now, when we think about the oil ETF, it is not physical oil. It is paper oil. The GLD, the gold ETF, is 
physical gold. Simply the reason is you can pile a lot of you know, all of that gold into your living room. In contrast, the U.S. oil, which just actually shut down before this call, um, we would require 55 BLCs to store that oil. Now imagine 55 BLCs parked out on the East River can't happen. So it stays in paper. Now, what happens if it stays in paper? What distinguishes a oil futures from any other type of asset um, out there like equities or bonds is that you cannot hold, buy and hold the position. You're going to be forced to roll. So essentially what they would do is they would buy May contract back in March. And as we come to the expiration, near expiration in April, they sell that position in the May and then turn around and buy the June contract. So they just continue to roll, you know, front to back over that time period. Now, because this was a well-telegraphed event, we experienced this in 2009, where the front end would collapse on expiration when you had full storage from the U.S. oil ETF, because they'd be forced to sell in a very weak fundamental market without a lot of liquidity. The front end would collapse, they'd turn around, and they'd buy the back. Because we'd experienced that, um, you know, well-seasoned ETS made it very clear that they tried to roll in advance. Now, there were some ETFs, um, you know, that were positioned in places like China that were automated and do not really understand these dynamics. And they went into expiration very long. By the way, like the Goldman Sachs Commodity Index and all these other types of paper instruments, they roll, you know, a week or two weeks ago to avoid the illiquidity you get on the front end. Now, you might have to ask yourself, why would they structure an ETF that would roll one day before the expiration? The only explanation I can come to is that um, they were watching the backwardation in the curve over the last um, several years and found value in doing that. Um, obviously, it's a lot of risk going up there. But I think the key point, and Damien will go over some of the fundamentals, just how long this market was going in there is you had dried up liquidity going into expiration. You have no place to put the, put the oil. And so instead of the negative price of the fundamental story, pricing a producer willing to take this oil away, what we had to price was the willingness of someone to take these ETFs out of those long positions, which is why we printed as low as minus $55 a barrel um, during that time period. By the way, we've seen this problem before. You know, Mattel Gelshaft in, in the early 1990s was another example of this. You know, these things are some of the biggest financial disasters we've seen. Um, and I would assume this one's going to rank right up there, you know, multi-billion dollar losses. Um, but it's because of holding a position too close um, to expiration. So I think the key point here is this was an idiosyncratic event that um, occurred in Cushing due to the roll. Again, you have you can't buy and hold. You're forced to roll. They had a lot of length going into that expiration, um, and as a result, prices had to clear low enough to get somebody to take them out of it. This one last point um, is that the one thing I've noticed this morning is that while it was a very technical idiosyncratic event, isolated to Cushing, Oklahoma, the press coverage of it um, really has created a sentiment shift. You know, all commodities are off right now, all equity markets. Most of my calls this this morning around deflationary concerns. So uh, the, the, I think the bigger impact of this is really what it's done to sentiment because it's just a lack of understanding of what happened here. They're taking it on face value. 
Um, so I think, you know, you've been looking at the other commodity markets, all of them are down very sharply um, overall today. Um, so that's going to conclude my comments. I'll turn it over to Damien. Uh, thanks, Jeff. So maybe uh, let me walk quickly through the mechanics of the expiration and what happened uh, yesterday. Um, you know, as Jeff mentioned, negative prices in commodities uh, we've seen before, um, natural gas in particular, even oil, whether it was uh, 2016, 2009, Um Here, really, the key was that it was the financial holder of an expiring contract that was trying to get rid of it. So, you know, that was really uh, the dynamic playing out yesterday. Um, the WTI CME contract is physically settled. Uh, so if you are long into the expiration, which will be today, um, during the month of May, you will have to take delivery of physical crude in Cushing. Um, you have to accommodate and find the room for that crude. And because Cushing is already uh, filling up nearly to saturation, you know, the ability to actually find that room in Cushing uh, for a May delivery uh, will be extremely challenging. Um, so kind of that's the setup. Uh, now, in terms of positioning, um, when you look at the open interest of the May contract uh, as of yesterday morning, at 108,000 contract, it's not that big, but it is five and a half times standard deviation larger than what you witnessed over the previous 24 expiration. Right? So there is a lot of open interest still in that expiring contract. Um, and so in the end, you know, that would have effectively been 55 million barrels of crude uh, to be delivered um, in Cushing if those positions were not reduced. Now, Cushing in two weeks' time will be likely completely full, and that's only another 10 million barrels from here. So you could see the uh, issue heading into the expiration. Um, and so this led to uh, this forced selling uh, by investors, most likely, uh, when we look at a significant increase uh, in long positions recently. Um, you know, if you look at some of the shares outstanding of those oil ETFs, you know, they're an enormous increase in length. So clearly, there's a lot of retail investment. Now, as Jeff mentioned, most ETFs roll early. Um, they don't want to be uh, caught into the expiration. Uh, but that's not the case uh, for all instruments. So that's really the core, right? A, a sticky long position uh, that was too large for the uh, ability uh, to take uh, delivery um, into Cushing, um, and that led to the price action. So if we look at, you know, as of this morning, open interest um, has um, shrunk a lot. It's actually now uh, about two standard deviations smaller than typically uh, you would see on the day of expiration. But again, you know, that's still 8 million barrels equivalent uh, of uh, oil uh, to be delivered next month. So some of that needs to be unwound uh, today uh, as well. Um, you know, I think what is core here uh, is how does it impact uh, prices uh, for the June contract? Well, again, that mechanics of expiration won't play out again until May 19th. Um, if you think about a lot of ETFs, like the USO, they're rolling um, earlier in May, around the 5th to the 8th. Um, but I think it may have created a sentiment shift in the oil market, uh, as just mentioned, um, because of the violence of the move. Um, it illustrates that, again, there is no lower bound uh, for commodity prices. Um, and at the end of the day, although the magnitude of the move isn't symptomatic of today's issue, it is reflective of the fact that we haven't resolved the current imbalance. Right? Demand is likely getting better, a tiny pace of improvement as uh, lockdowns are being eased. Uh, but it remains, you know, 20 million barrels per day below the current level of supply. So, you know, higher demand 
cuts from OPEC, all that help over time, but the storage is running out in the next few weeks. Um, so the downward pressure on prices uh, will likely uh, persist through the next few weeks. Um, and I want to emphasize this will be a short-term uh, rebalancing, right? We don't have two months to find out uh, where we can put the oil. Uh, as yesterday's price action indicated, the issue is binding in the month of May, right? That's why no one wanted to take physical crude delivery in Cushing in May. Um, so that really uh, will force a, a violent rebalancing now from a producer perspective. We already have seen low prices, negative prices physically, locally in the US and isolated places. Uh, but I think now um, this will become uh, either negative or very low prices, a binding constraint for the next uh, few weeks. Uh, now, when you look across asset classes, to some extent, you've seen an initial resilience to lower prices because this, again, was a very a short-term local issue. Um, I think, you know, when we think about other asset classes, they typically reflect the back end of the curve uh, where oil um, is more stable, more effective of marginal cost. But again, as you're trying to uh, deal with this imbalance with now the realization that prices can be sharply negative, even those long-dated prices in the next few weeks could see uh, a significant repricing lower. And so I think even though this is a transient issue, um, you know, not all asset classes will be able to look through uh, what it implies uh, for uh, energy prices uh, over the next couple months. Um, that's really the core uh, of what played out yesterday. And again, I really want to emphasize, as Jeff mentioned, you know, when you buy equities, you're owning a piece of a company. When you buy a commodity future, you're one side of a two-way contract that has a seller on the other end, right? And at the end, on expiration, those two get matched for delivery. And that's the issue the oil market faces today. There is no room to accommodate that delivery process. That, Jeff, turning it back to you. Yeah, I just want to also add on that, on that point is what made this one far more extreme was the, the fact that this ETF waited to one day before uh, the expiration to roll. We've seen these events. By the way, they're some of the biggest financial crises in history. You know, Mattel, Gelshaft being one. We saw them in, in 09. Um, you know, these roles end up being you know, very, very dangerous. Um, but this one was exceptionally poorly timed. Um, hey, Brian, why don't you talk about um, the shut-in? Great. Thanks, Jeff, and, and, and good morning. I'm going to briefly speak to how U.S. producers are considering shut-ins and where these could come from. In determining whether to shut in, producers largely look at their cash costs, particularly variable costs, and take a view on the longevity of below cash cost prices, and then lastly, what the risks are in terms of well degradation in the future and then meeting any lease commitments. We believe inland producers that sell into local markets are more at risk than those that can access coastal markets, though, if the ships on the coast or coastal refineries can't take oil, then even producers with coastal access are at risk of shut-ins. In terms of what wells could be shut in, we looked at wells in the lower 48 onshore in the Permian Basin, Eagleford, Bakken, DJ Basin, and California that combined comprise 8 to 9 million barrels per day. Of these, 3 million barrels per day of U.S. oil production come from wells that produce less than 100 barrels per day. These wells in general, we believe, have higher unit cash operating costs and would be at greater risk of impairment once brought back online or considered being brought back online after a shut-in. We expect additional shut-in announcements in the coming weeks, particularly if there's weakness in June futures, as there is today. Now, so far, we've heard from producers regarding CapEx reductions. We're assuming almost 50% lower year-on-year -year for E&Ps and low 40% when weight averaging in the majors. 
We've also gotten announcements of dividend cuts. Now the focus as we go into earnings season will be on the negative impact to production from both the lower capex as the year progresses and from the production shut-ins. As the shut-ins become more material, equity investors can focus more on the recovery, and we are seeing some signs of this in recent equities trading. There's a lot more on shut-ins and the implications from producer announcements uh, on equities in our recent reports, and uh, uh, I will turn it, uh, I'll turn it back to uh, uh, Chris uh, to turn it over to Anthony. Anthony, do I want to jump in from a trading standpoint? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, obviously unprecedented times and, and you know, certainly something that we, we never would have imagined the scale um, of, of yesterday's move would have um, would have been possible, but certainly something that we've been telegraphing for a while, that when you have these geographical constraints, there's two things that really start to take hold um, in, in, in the market, and that is the logistical constraints of actually having a physical player um, stabilize prices, and then the supply and demand of the futures themselves, i.e. who are the holders of the longs, who are the holders of the shorts, um, and, and, and when do liquidation on both sides um, need to occur. So now if, if we move on from, from, from yesterday's price action, as I think it's been pretty well covered um, by, by Jeff and, and, and Damien already, um, you know, some of the things that we're focused on, you know, in, in, as, uh, on, on a going forward basis is what are the risks this happening again in June, um, in June contracts. Um, you know, the, I, I think one of the things that we're going to be looking at very closely is the trajectory of Cushing inventories um, and whether this extreme price action and this extreme distress within the domestic Cushing market is going to force some pipes to re-divert some of the oil um, away from Cushing and therefore avoid um, the tank tops, which has really been the fear in the market that's created this um, this negative price action in WTI. Um, and then the other thing that we're um, going to be looking at is how open interest evolves um, in, in the next several weeks. Does de-risking and this sort of a, a, a reduction in overall positioning um, start to happen um, across all of the different market participants? Um, does the extreme volatility that we've witnessed actually force a lot of the risk capital that's out there um, to, to reduce. The other thing that we're going to be very um, focused on is the impact in the other oil markets. So what impact is this starting to have um, on, on Brent? What impact is this starting to have for a lot of the oil producers within OPEC um, that have set a lot, of their, um, a lot of their pricing differentials, the way that they sell oil to their refiner clients, which is use the global benchmark, i.e. Brent or one of the Middle Eastern crudes, and apply a premium or a discount. In this case, we're seeing very heavy discounts to those crudes. That could result in some negative pricing for some of the OPEC producers as well. So we're going to be very focused on that and seeing you know, any, any reaction um, that comes in. Um, you know, so far, uh, my colleagues in, in research have certainly outlined what is necessary, and we certainly need to see um, shut-ins of, of U.S. production and shut-ins on a global basis, um, but it, that are linked to these um, to these extreme um, weak prices, and that really is the only way to solve um, the the extreme imbalance that we're currently ex- experiencing at the moment with this um, with this substantial demand loss. Um, so I'd say those are sort of the you know the various things that we're focused on um, on the trading side. Obviously, the markets have become. Um, a lot more volatile and a lot less liquid, um, and you know certainly the um, the ability to transfer risk in, in in these markets has has become a lot harder um, as a result. I'll leave it there. 
Thank you, Anthony. Uh, let's turn to the questions. Jeff, you want me to get in the questions? I can jump through. Uh, we've got tons of them coming in off the webcast. <clears throat> and I, I think the uh, the first primary question that's coming in is around Brent. If this can happen to WTI, why can't it happen to Brent? We've got 20 ships coming over from Saudi. They're going to about to hit the, uh, the, the Gulf Coast. When that happens, does this all just sort of seep out into the seaborne market? Uh, what are we thinking there? I think the key issue with Brent is that, you know, it's a waterborne crude. Um, you know, it's not going to have the same type of congestion that WTI will. WTI prices 500 miles from the water. Um, Brent prices 500 meters from the water. You know, as somebody was jokingly say this cruise lines, you could fill up with oil. I think the key point there, you're not going to get so congested at Brent um, where you would have the, the need for producers to pay somebody to take the oil away because you can take it away. The other thing about Brent is a cash-settled contract as opposed to a physically-settled contract, um, which makes these dynamics on the roll far less, you know, potentially, you know, violent moves like that we've seen. Again, we've seen these before in WTI. This is not new. Um, but I think Brent, um, you know, is going to struggle, you know, it, 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 with um, but, you know, it'll benefit because of its location being cash settled. It's unlikely to see these same type of dynamics. Now, there's other markers all over Europe where you can see see these types of problems begin to develop. But something that's sitting 500 meters from from the water, yeah, it can go down and visit the tent, but it, hey, it's unlikely to go you know go into an extreme negative level um, unless you completely run out of every potential ship to um, to to begin to utilize. Um, Damien, why don't you talk about what's going on more of the grades around the world? Um, I mean, I think, you know, Jeff's point was key is, you know, the issue is inland. So the further inland you go, uh, the bigger the issue you have. Um, it's, first of all, symptomatic yesterday that it's TI that sold off the most, emphasizing that it was a financial issue. But nonetheless, uh, those physical crude grades in North America uh, are starting to sell off. You have uh, negative prices. Uh, in West Texas, uh, in Wyoming, um, and you know the countries there that are most exposed are large inland producers. So of course Canada and the U.S. Uh, why uh, Brian's focus on the shut-ins, but that also applies to Russia, for example, uh, to Colombia, to Ecuador. Um, so that's probably where um, you know I think the, the shut-ins will occur. They have lasting consequences. That's something to not forget. Um, it's hard to restart when you've shut in. So you know, although you have to shut in now, it probably curtails the ability for the market uh, to get that supply back later on. Something we'll have to deal with um, in the second half of this year. All right. Next set of questions is around the June contract. Uh, should we expect this to happen very soon to the June contract, uh, or does the June contract have some time before it happens to it? Well, I think the, the one thing with the June contract, it's getting hit hard right now with the U.S. oil um, shutting down, probably indicative that they tried to roll early so nobody could front run them. Um, you know, and so, you know, I tend to think, you know, you rarely ever see the same type of positioning um, you know, mishaps are reoccurring because people change their behavior. But the fundamental story of negative prices, that can absolutely play out again. Um, but the positioning story, um, you know, I, I would view it as being, you know, it's, it's, we don't know what's happened to the U.S. oil fund right now as we talk, but I would tend to think the positioning will be very different. Um, you know, one point that Anthony likes to make is this happened over and over in 2009, where that front end kept collapsing for like three or four months straight until finally the market rebounds. So the odds of that happening again, but from a fundamental perspective, um, as we go into June expiration is quite high. 
I, I think the one thing I would say is that we have more time here, right? So, so there are corrective mechanisms um, that can happen for Cushing on a, you know, on a physical basis. There are pipe flows that can be diverted. There's refinery runs that can tweak um, that that can enable um, the, the the avoidance of these of these tank tops. Um, but certainly, you know, these are measures that are that are necessary right now, um, and, and certainly something that we need to start seeing in the in in, in the data um, very quickly to start getting the comfort that um, you know that this isn't about to happen to the um, to the June contract. Last question around the contracts is: Can a holder of a future contract simply refuse delivery? We've gotten that from several people, uh, or, or is that something you're just not allowed to do? Anthony? Anthony? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean, you would structurally uh, default, so you'd have to pay for all the costs associated with it. So, you know, the costs there are significant too. So it's not a, an easy option that gets you out of trying to get out of that position. Yeah, I, I, I okay. my line actually went went uh, went dead as, as as you were reading the question, but I think it was sort of around someone's ability to not fulfill their their obligations on on the exchange. I mean, as as Damien points out, I think there would, there would be a, a very significant challenge to um to that that would uh, that would occur, and, and obviously all costs associated with uh, you know whoever's on the other side and, and waiting for delivery um would 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 obviously claim a lot of those costs. Another set of questions around uh, policy and OPEC. Uh, is there anything that OPEC plus or policymakers can do in response that could uh, rectify this situation near term? Well, so we got a few comments uh, yesterday uh, from the U.S. administration talks about you know, buying into the SPR. Effectively, that's already uh, embedded in our balances. It impacts the Gulf Coast if you can get it in. Um, and again, does nothing really for the Cushing delivery point. Um, you know, it's been talked about tariffs on imports. You know, again, you know, the margin, it helps a little bit because it prevents more crude coming in. But again, that would be on the Gulf Coast. It doesn't uh, tackle the localized storage saturation uh, that we have. Um, what you need is you'd need a, you know, enormous cut right now. Um, you know, it took four days to agree to a cut that starts in another two weeks. Um, even if tomorrow uh, we had another incremental cut, you know, it's a 40-day shipping time to most destinations from the Middle East, it does not resolve the local saturation. All those policy prospects are just too late. Um, you know, you could start to potentially, we'll see uh, what the Texas Commission discusses and decides. You know, prorate per production. But again, even that, if it takes three weeks, it's too late already. So this is crunch time from a physical market perspective. You know, policy decisions are uh, probably too late at this point. A corollary of that question is around demand uh, and supply and how long this lasts. What does demand have to get back to in order to stabilize this market? And is there is there really enough supply that can get shut down to get this market balance, we were talking about, you know, we're oversupplied by as many as much as 30 million barrels a day. How does that work? How long does that take? Uh, sure. So, you know, the balance that we laid out uh, for the month of May required at that point that, you know, call it 5 million barrels per day of supply uh, be shut in uh, due to prices. Um, you know, that's important because we're going to get some production uh, cuts due to policy. 
uh, we still have a little bit of room to store, right? We're not full everywhere. Uh, we're hitting uh, issues in May uh, locally. Uh, but again, we need, uh, call it that 5 million barrels per day of price-induced shut-in by May. Um, you know, it's unprecedented. It's an enormous number. Um, but, you know, it will have uh, to be achieved, hence uh, the violence uh, of this uh, rebalancing. Um, and again, it's not a June-July story. It has to occur then. Now, that's core because by May, demand won't have recovered significantly, right? We estimate uh, April demand is probably down 25 million barrels per day from the impact of the virus. Uh, by May, that's probably down maybe 19, 20 million barrels per day. So you see a modest improvement. At that point, though, you know, the hard work has been done by the supply side. So as demand gets a bit better in June and July, since you've shut supply to meet demand, because there is no storage, actually the market's already in deficit by then, right? So I think, again, the core of the issue is lack of storage. The short-term adjustment can only be on the supply side through shut-ins. Demand has nowhere the ability to solve that. But once you have achieved a shut-in to balance this market, any incremental improvement in demand does create a deficit. It's not a huge recovery in prices, but it is fine that you're creating finally some relief on uh, storage. And that probably is the first stage of the rebalance. Um, questions around re the refiners. How do the refineries respond in this environment? Uh, and uh, are they vulnerable? Uh, could they actually uh, benefit? Uh, so the way we've mapped the refinery outlook really is, you know, the issue they face is the one we just discussed, which is the demand uh, collapse. Um, so, you know, they have limited ability to run. Um, their storage is getting full. You have the same issues there. Uh, it's even actually more binding because you can't mix diesel, gasoline, and jet. You have to keep them segregated. So you're hitting those constraints uh, even faster than you would on the crude side. Um, so as that saturation displays, refiners run less. That's a problem for the crude market, right? That suddenly your outlet through the refining system um, is over. So if you're a producer of two pipes, one to a refinery, one to a storage tank, well, one of those two now uh, can't function, exacerbating the crude uh, localized stress. Um, as demand recovers, um, you know, refiners uh, will want to restart. It takes time, though, right? So, you know, it takes two to four weeks uh, if you've uh, sold your refinery um, and so initially, you're going to draw products. You have plenty of storage. There's no shortage looming. Um, you know, margins will recover as, as that draws. But as soon as refiners come back online, you know, demand hasn't normalized. And so margins can't stay good, right? So, you know, you can get, like we saw in China, a short-term boost in margin once demand starts to pick up. But because the demand recovery will be quite gradual, in the end, you know, margins can't be good for any sustained period of time. Um, because you know, refiners can just ramp up activity and, and produce what's necessary. So that's kind of the core uh, on the refining side. Sure, conceptually, they benefit from this super cheap crude, but because of the demand shock, they can't actually run. Um, so you know, it means uh, a limited ability uh, to monetize um, the very, very extremely cheap crude that you can see locally, uh, even in North America. Uh, and several questions around that gas. That's holding up relatively well. Is that trade getting crowded? Should it be holding up well? Just explain why it is. Sure. Uh, so I think, you know, natural gas did have a big bounce uh, yesterday uh, because I think it became uh, apparently clear that we're going to be losing a lot of associated gas uh, production. Um, you know, that's been core to our bullish thesis uh, on natural gas. Um, you know, for our winter forecast, we're well above forward and consensus because, yes, there is a demand hit. 
from uh, losing uh, the uh, industrial demand uh, due to the virus. But um, when you're looking at shut-ins of production of, call it, a million and a half to two million barrels per day just in the U.S. uh, associated gas, and that over a six-month period, then that uh, will far outweigh uh, the losses uh, on the demand side. So, you know, this is ultimately a bullish uh, gas setup. One thing to keep in mind, though, right, in the short term, the gas market is still oversupplied, right? The shortage really accrues over time, really is problematic by the winter. If gas rallies too much today, you're going to hit that October storage constraint uh, for the 2020 balances in the U.S. So, you know, it can't rally too much now because you still have this binding storage constraint. You're not nowhere near as close to storage capacity as you are in oil. But again, you know, if you rally too much too soon, you won't get to that constraint. So, you know, you can't move too much. But by the winter, once you're through that storage constraint, the balance does look quite uh, healthy. And Chris, I might just add to that in terms of the impact of the shut-ins on gas. When we looked at the Permian Basin, Eagleford, Bakken, and DJ Basin, and we looked within those uh, basins at oil wells that are producing less than 100 barrels a day, uh, uh, that represented about 1.5 million barrels a day of oil production, but it also represents four to five BCF a day of estimated associated uh, dry gas production. So to Damien's point, if there are oil shut-ins, those will come with gas uh, with associated gas shut-ins as well. Mr. Singer, that's a good segue to the other question, which is how how easy is it to get these uh, shale uh, fields off and on, especially those smaller fields, 100 uh, barrels per day fields. Uh, uh, when they turn off, will they ever turn back on? Uh, and what does that say about long-term production in the U.S.? Yeah, thanks. So the producer comments on this are mixed. Um, a lot of the producers have highlighted that they shut in wells all the time. I think that's particularly in reference to some of the higher rate flush horizontal wells. If there's uh, fracking or drilling activity um, that's going on nearby, uh, then uh, oftentimes producing wells nearby will be shut in temporarily. Those shut-ins typically are days to weeks, not necessarily months. Um, And the producer comments suggest those wells can be brought on relatively quickly, and I think that's under the context of a shut-in that lasts days days or weeks. Um, We think uh, that there is greater risk when we talk about some of these vertical legacy wells um, uh, not coming back on or coming on at reduced rates if they are shut in for a prolonged period of time, uh, particularly if there's ever any uh, issues regarding wells that need repair um, or need some additional capex, those may take longer to come back online or the producers may decide not to bring them back online. So um, when that's why we're focused a little bit more on some of these sub 100 barrel a day type wells um, not only because they have higher unit operating costs, but because we do think there is some greater risk that a percentage uh, of those wells, and it's hard to quantify the precise percentage, um, will be uh, will be impaired down the road. And Damien, a similar question around Russia: uh, Will they have the ability to turn stuff on and off there in uh, in their field? Yeah, I mean that's a risk, right? You have a lot of conventional. I mean pretty much all conventional production in Russia. Some of it has by the ability to uh, shut in and restart, uh, but you know some of it will be uh, probably uh, challenged in restarting potentially lost given the geology uh, of the Russian field. Um, so I think you know that uh, might be a sticky uh, loss of capacity. Um, and again, broadly, when you look at, you know, it's pretty much any uh, legacy reservoir um, that will have that issue. Um, and so that's why it's important to think about you know, what it means longer term. 
um, you know, the bullish story on oil will be both the demand recovery, but also the persistence of lost capacity due to shut-ins. Um, so I think that can set, um, you know, not in the short run, but, you know, by 21, a much, uh, you know, stronger recovery in prices uh, than if it was simply a demand shock here. That concludes this episode of Exchanges Goldman Sachs. Thanks for listening. And if you enjoyed this show, we hope you subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave a rating or a comment. And tune in for our weekly markets update Friday morning, where leaders around the firm provide a quick take on markets and COVID-19 related volatility. This podcast was recorded on April 21st, 2020. All price references and market forecasts correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the listener. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast, and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.